And good evening. Thank you for joining us, our fellow lovers of love, for this excursion through the stream of consciousness, down the river of tranquility, and on towards the lake of love. Very good. Yeah, I get one right. I doesn't actually deserve applause. <laughs> just, 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 just pointing this out. You know, getting one right on occasion. At this point, I shouldn't be missing them as often as I do. But it is what it is. Well, and I want to thank everybody for, for joining us a day late. But, you know, I went to a 9-11 event. And I spent the morning at the 9-11 event. And by the time I got home, I wasn't feeling very well. Yeah. So we talked about mental health and taking care of yourself and listening to your, your bodies. And we listened to mine. So we're doing the show today. And, you know, that's about loving ourselves and allowing, you know, yourselves to heal. But I did learn something. Huh. That when the doctor says, you know, you can participate in physical activity as tolerated, you know, that as tolerated thing is kind of in quotations, as tolerated. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I was literally fine until I wasn't. So, you know, it's just... Uh, it's frustrating. It's got to be frustrating. So, you know, it's, it's hard to know. And it's hard to know. Maybe I didn't drink enough water. Maybe... It was the heat. It was kind of warm out there. And, you know, I haven't been actually have much physical activity the last what, five months. Just haven't been able to. So maybe it's, you know, the combination. Who knows? And it's a public event. And as much as I've evolved, it's, they're still stressful for my... Well, they're not stressful for me. They're stressful for my body. Yeah. You know, my body still has the reaction whether I, my mind wants to, you know, whether I am impacted by it emotionally or not, my body still gets it. You know, that's the anxiety disorder. The body still goes through it whether you've learned to cope with it. It doesn't bother you emotionally anymore. It does, but the body you still, still feels, physically have to go through it. The body still, and the liver doesn't like that shot of adrenaline. So, well, the stress, the shadow of adrenaline, it's not fun. So, anyway. And it was a... And these are sobering events. It was a bring our trope... I don't want to... I'm be careful here, because we don't want to dive into politics. You know, I'm, I live this dual life. <laughs> I really do. I have this political life, and then we have the podcast and the love. And that part of the life. And we try to keep them separate. But on occasion, they cross paths in a way that's not possible to keep them separate. And so, it's having to navigate that intersection. is Because I don't want to bring politics to it. But how can we talk about our lives when, you know, politics is such a big part of mine? You know, and I can take the political parties part of it out. And that's essentially how I try to deal with it, by taking... Like, I don't mention what political party I'm a part of. 
I don't think we've mentioned it here before. I mean, at some points it'll cross. It'll, it'll just come out. Uh, maybe I've dropped it and haven't thought about it. But I will say, we're not. A, I'm not. I won't speak for you. I apologize. And I just did. Go ahead. I just threw you under the bus. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we're not part of the one of the major political parties. We're not part of the big two. And we'll kind of leave it at that. So we play in the in the realm of third world politics. And anybody who looks my name up can find out. It's not like it's a big secret. I ran for freaking public office <laughs> in the state of California. It's not like, you know, a statewide office. It's not like I'm hidden in some backwater somewhere. Yeah. In the state capital of California, and I ran for a state office. You know, it's not hidden. But anyway, the point was, is so I'm sitting here with a lot of my ideological compatriots, you know, and when I say, I use that term because, you know, they're not all political party compatriots. They're philosophical compatriots. We don't all, they don't all belong to the same party. They don't all even belong to political parties, but we all share a generic philosophy. And so some veterans that I work with as part of my, our local group set this whole thing up. And uh, it was it's a good event. You should have been there. You're a veteran. You should have been there. It was too early for you. And actually, it was probably too hot and too much sun. So it's one of those things. I would have ended up being sick <laughs> with yeah, you. Yeah, we would have been sick together. So it would have been nice if you had been there. You would have appreciated the, the, the all of the veterans that speak. And yes. Yeah, you would have been honored there. Well, I served, I only served a couple of years and I only served peacetime only. I'm, I'm always very clear about that. I was never deployed. Yeah, I, 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 you guys separate yourselves. You, you segregate yourselves in a way that the public doesn't. And it's, it's, it's strange. I can understand it from a, from, if I can put myself in that position and see where it comes from. But one of the speakers there, he was, he was literally in Fallujah, in Iraq, but he was supply, so he doesn't count. He says he doesn't count himself as, you're working in Fallujah in, in Iraq. I think it counts. It doesn't matter if you're working in the warehouse, you know. Yeah, okay, you have, I get that you have an extra respect for those patrols, even though everybody had to go out on patrols. Well, in the military, they're the real deal. Yeah. The frontline guys are the are the real deal. And they get the kudos. We are just support. Yeah, but they're with the and the same way the public looks at it, without the support, those frontline guys don't Yes, we do our bit, but we don't we don't put our we're not in imminent danger like they are. I I I, I get it, but the pub I, it's just the public doesn't treat you guys separately and it seems like it almost seems like veterans, and you can kind of get it, someone who was never deployed and worked at home, maybe was a file clerk, will feel differently than someone who was deployed and fighting and fighting the thing. And I, I get it that you don't want to overplay your service, but I think in attempting to not overplay the service, I think many of them downplay their service. We do, yes. 
and and I get the not wanting to overplay. I understand that because you've seen people, you know people who to pass away and who, who don't make it home, and you don't want to step anywhere near those lines because it's a dishonor to their memory. Yes, it is. And so I get that, but at the same time, I think it's wrong that the that they don't appreciate that you know that these that separation there's there's got to be a better way it's just it seems that well it just kind of is what it is and there's there's no i i do have to say there's no delineation of service with the the guys who were in the front line they always say hey you were there you did your bit. You your service counted. Thank you for your service too. They don't do it. We do it. We do it. The people who who were in who are were just support. We're the ones who do it to ourselves. Nobody else is doing this to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I I don't get that from the the grunts because we've we've had frontline soldiers. You know, we had one live with us for a year. Yes. And and so and that's. Anyway, there's a there's there's kind of a strange bit of honor there, but it's the downplaying that I'm going. You know, I wish they wouldn't downplay their role. I get not wanting to overplay it. I just wish they wouldn't want to downplay it. That's that's all. And I don't know. Maybe it's an impossible. Maybe I'm asking for something that's just not possible. Maybe it's the way it is because it's the way it has to be. You know, maybe it is. Maybe it has to be that way. Maybe it's the way that, you know, those who don't serve can feel like they honor those who do. Don't, that don't face the bullets every day, who don't go out on patrols, who aren't really in, in mortal danger continually like the grunts are. And it's your way of honoring that. It is. It you know? is. And so maybe there's no other way to do it. Maybe there's no other way to honor that without seemingly downplaying your role. Maybe there's just not a way to do it. I just wish there was. Because we we honor all of them. Everybody who sacrifices. Don't get get me wrong. I'm I'm proud of what I did. It was it was hard. I was when we weren't. They there weren't a lot of women. It was some rough service. Um, but uh, your battlefield was a little different. My, <laughs> battle, my battlefield was a little different. It was fending off soldiers everywhere you go, constantly, every day. And some of them were not very nice. Yeah, see, that's a different battle. And so, in a sense, you know, the the women who serve today have people like you to thank because you took the early. You know, you're the ones who had to take the, the those initial arrows. Because it's not like before. Before you, it was mostly nurses who served, who were serving in the military. It's mostly nurses. Yeah. And so you were kind of that first group because you were the late seventies. Yeah. First, maybe the second group, I guess. The second group who really became actual. We were the second. We weren't the first wave. You were the yeah. You're the second group. The second wave of women. Yes. So you took a lot of, they had to take a lot of those early arrows where the, 
they still didn't know what they were doing, you know, and how into how to, they're still trying to figure out how the hell you integrate this. How do we integrate men and women into the military service? They still don't really know how to do it. And <laughs> fifty years later, or whatever the hell it is, it's a tough thing. It, it, it just is, you know, unless you're like Israel, who started it from scratch that way. If you start that culture from scratch that way, it's a much easier thing than how do you rebuild a culture. And rebuilding a culture like that is very difficult. It just is. Even when it's the military and you can theoretically order them to do it. It's Well, I recognize early on that this was a man's world. It had been their world for a long, long time. And some of them were going to be upset over women encroaching. They didn't feel we had... And you just, you're not going to convince these guys. You just got to do your, put your head down and do your job and let him alone. Because it, it's never a good interaction. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's the sad, the sad part is, but the reality is you probably had to go through that stage in order to get where we are today and get farther. You have to go through these stages. We all want to flip these things like a light switch and it just, Damn it, evolution just doesn't work like that. Even cultural evolution. Cultural evolution works faster than biological evolution, but it's still a slow process. Yeah. You know, it seems things can seem to move fast, but it takes a long time to settle. So, which is part of the reason why we see so much social disruption today, is we made a lot of changes over a relatively short period of time, and it's going to take some time to settle. You know, a lot of things were disrupted in a short period of time, and it was like, it's, it's essentially, it's the same thing. There's some people that will not be able to move as fast as the rest of the society does. It's just not possible for them. It's actually too much, it's actually unkind to ask of them, because it's not possible. You're asking them something that it's... Fundamentally, so, they can't do. They can't do. They were raised in a vastly different time. They're too far set in their ways. And some people are more born more naturally flexible anyway. And so if you're someone who's naturally inflexible, you've been that way, you're, you're born and raised in a world that's one way. And in the last 10 years, 15 years of your life, the world changes on a dime. You know, there's some people who will not be able to cope. And it takes, the rest of us should have some compassion for that. Yeah. yeah. The same way that, you know, you wish people had had compassion for people who were culturally outside the norms. You wish you'd have some compassion for people who are culturally outside the norms. Especially when we've changed culture rapidly. Rapidly, yeah. And they're kind of left holding the bag. You say, you know, they, they need to move and they need to change, but you can feel some compassion for them. But, you know, the world they knew no longer exists. And so they're standing on ground they don't understand. And that's a... Psychologically scary thing. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, what do we have on tap? We have thirty-one secrets. Is which ones we want to do? Thirty-one secrets of people who live with anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I just threw a bunch of stuff on the wall today, and so we'll see what we get. Now, I relate to number nine. All right. So let's go through these. Well, I relate. I resemble a lot of these remarks. <laughs> I just want to point this out here. Let's say the first one. We'll go through them real quick. 
I realize everything. Okay, we have to. Oh wow, I do realize the things I worry about are ridiculous, even though I'm aware. I just can't stop it. Yeah, I know. Me too. Actually, I need you to read. So it. I can relate to that uh, with my doom brain, but uh, you know that frustrating feeling of knowing it's not true, but your body is still responding and your head is still reeling. No, well, I was just talking about it. You know, my anxiety disorder, I'm perfectly, my brain is perfectly comfortable at these events now. I'm perfectly reasonable, you know, I'm comfortable there, but my body thinks I'm in mortal danger. What the hell's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, you've got that, and you know it doesn't make sense, but, man, you know, if it made sense, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to reserve my, I have, a, I have a line I like to say, but I'm trying to reserve, I don't want, I'd end up using it 30 times on this thing. If I, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to hold it back. <laughs> or a couple of good ones. It might, what is it? I might look like I I'm doing I might look nothing. like I'm doing nothing, but in my head I'm quite busy. Yes, indeed. Yes, because you're analyzing everything. It's essentially what happened. Even things that you have, you know, you don't need to be thinking about. You know, it's pointless, but it is. It's there anyway. And you, if it's there, you've got to deal with it. And that's the thing: is you have to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, if you just try to ignore it, focus, push it out. You're not honoring yourself. You know, you're not loving yourself. The best, okay, for me, the best way of actually getting to the point where I could start dealing with my anxiety was was realizing I have to love myself despite it or because of it. You know, sometimes it's a gift. And so if you're going to take the great gift, you have to accept the, you know, accept the balance. All right, so what is that? Three, I don't always know why I'm anxious. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Free-floating anxiety. I just, that's my favorite. Yeah. I'm ordering a hamburger. What's the freaking problem? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You go, what do you want? Yeah. What? <laughs> what is it? It's debilitating. It can be debilitating. Okay, I can't read this. It's, uh, it's all blurry. I don't just get nervous. Heck, half the time I'm not even nervous when I'm having a panic attack. I'm anxious. Sometimes it's for no reason I can identify. When I'm anxious and nervous, I recognize rational, but I can't just snap out of it. My mind and body aren't cooperating with reason. Yeah. If... If these things made sense, it wouldn't be called a disorder. It's, you know, fundamentally, it doesn't make sense. So stop trying to make sense of it. And that's actually helped me a lot, is accepting that. Look, I'm not going to be able to make sense of it, so stop trying. It is what it is. But why is it doing this way? Because it's how you are. You're looking for reasons that aren't there. So <laughs> they're not there. You're not going to find a reason. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, you're, you're, it's wasting time. 
It's wasting it's, energy. It's so hard for so for people to understand that. Yeah. Well, it, it's not, it's hard to understand it and accept it for yourself. Well, it took many years, but I'm much better at it than I used to be. Yeah, I'm not being ridiculous or dramatic. Well, this one I want to, I want to disagree with a little bit. We are being a little, but it is a little ridiculous, and and it can be a little seen to somebody else that is being a little bit dramatic. You gotta, we have to look at this from their perspective as well. We have to be compassionate. We want them to be compassionate towards us. We have to be compassionate towards the rest of the world. They don't understand what we're going through. No. And so. Just, and so the same thing. We don't understand how they're interpreting, why they're interpreting us the way it is. We think, but we think it's clear, but it's not. Our worlds are so different that for them it appears it's being ridiculous and dramatic because it is. We have a disorder. It's ridiculous and dramatic, but it is. And you know, as we accept that, it gets back. It never goes away. That's what I want to think people we have to understand is there's no bullet. It doesn't go away. It doesn't stop. Even for those of us who relatively manage it relatively well, that's the thing. We manage it relatively well. It's not success. It's not like we've cured it. We haven't moved past it. We've allowed it to become part of us. So we stop fighting it. Because, you know, what is, what is it I like to say in politics? I like to say, you know, stop fighting for things. Fighting only hurts people and breaks things. That's all it, that's all it does. You want to work towards things. You can advocate for things. But stop fighting. And the same thing comes with yourself. Stop fighting yourself. Because that's who you're fighting. You're fighting yourself. You're only hurting yourself and breaking things. You cure your, you're not going to cure yourself, but you can start understanding yourself. And that makes things better. Okay. Where are we at? We don't need to look at someone to look at us like we're crazy. We need someone to be compassionate. Yep. And again, I'm going to repeat that we need to be compassionate to other people. Because they don't understand. And it's jobs like ours like mine, is now kind of my task is to help other people understand. That's kind of my role in this, is to try and help other people understand. It's one of our goals, is to try and bridge that gap. Yeah. So, I don't want to feel this way. Oh, Jesus Christ. That is, that's right there. If there's a, <laughs> if there is a, um, a phrase, a saying that you can, <laughs> yeah, all, every single one of us would want to wear this. I don't want to feel this way. I really don't. It's, but you know, that is the just just a perfect way of saying I can't add anything to it. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. Okay, number nine is the one I really identified with. After a hectic day, especially after being in crowds or dealing directly with multiple people, I have a people hangover the next day. I need time alone to reboot from all the energy used. I have to rest and reset my mind. If I don't, I will become bone tired, overwhelmed, and moody. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's the, 
it's kind of like an introvert extrovert thing on steroids. That's a very good way to say it. So, so if you're an, if you're an extrovert, and, and it can, you know, if you're an extrovert, you need the input from people. You actually lose energy by not being around people. Okay? It actually drains you to not be around people. And now, those of us who are introverts don't understand that at all. <laughs> but we can understand it's true. Yes, yes, we under we accept it. Yes, we can understand. Can't relate to it in any possible way, but we can accept that it's true. Yes. And the same thing goes for you know the extrovert crowds and these things are exhausting. And then if you have an anxiety disorder pinned on top of that. You know, it's so you're essentially you're living in fight or flight mode while being drained. It's you know, and that has a psychological impact. How could it not? You know, so when someone comes in and they come home from one of these things and they go cave up, whether you know whatever it is they do to cave up, it's it's a self protection thing. Don't feel guilty. And Sometimes if, I go some places, you come pick me up, and I don't say anything on the ride home because I'm all talked out. I feel bad. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm perfectly comfortable in silence. So you know me. We're fine with that. But yeah, it's there's a difference. It's so if you're an extrovert, you just don't understand that. But yeah, it's totally possible I social anxiety and be an ranger expert, and that's true. You can still need that energy. Because anxiety disorder and your introvert extrovert thing are not related. Now I would could I don't understand how you can actually live like that. That's I, but because you're dealing with things that to me are see counter counter counterintuitive. But I've also learned that anxiety disorder manifests itself in so many different ways that I you know I you just trust that it's true. But, it, you know, the, just because you're an extrovert doesn't mean that you're not going to have any, some type of anxiety disorder. It just manifests itself. Yeah. That's so, all. And it might be an extra burden. It might be a heavier burden because you have the need to go out with people and then you're by and you have to deal with the fallout afterward. That would be hard. Yeah, but maybe your anxiety is feeling left out, being left alone, not being part of the crowd, being, and so maybe. It's, that makes sense. I could see that. So maybe it's reverse. That's it, it, you know that's so unique. You just can't stop worrying. There's no on or off switch. Yeah, it it it's kind of works on its own. You can't turn it off or on. Like some people will say, just like some people say, just turn your brain off to go to bed. It doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way for me either. Yeah, I've never understood that. Well, just clear your mind. What? You need to clear your mind. The best thing I can do to clear my mind is thinking about clearing my mind, so the only thing I'm thinking about is clearing my mind. <laughs> well, you think about uh, time travel and theory of relativity. Uh, you give your brain something to do. Yeah. Yeah, you contemplate. You do. Mm -hmm. You run thought experiments. I run thought experiments, like Einstein. You know, put yourself on, on a particle of light, and what happens? Just think it through.
Do you think I have a busy little brain? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we have to contemplate the meaning of time and what happens at time at the speed of light. And, and yeah, it, yeah, it's just, it's a never-ending circle. That's why Einstein went crazy. That's why he had the hip weird hair. <laughs> and I did make all that up, just want to be clear. Uh, Lovey wants a break? No, we got viewers. You don't get a break today. Oh, okay. Um, so, so there, but we are going to create the, the, the fake break. So we're going to create a fake break for our uh, sponsor, and we'll be right back. And we are and back. We're back. <laughs> Yay! Thank you for joining us. We are running here through our 31 things uh, to relate to social anxiety, unless we want to hop to questions. I want to hop to questions. All right, so we're going to hop if to I'm questions. If I'm not going to get a break, I want to hop to questions. All right, so we'll come back. We're at number... 13? No, yes. let's, go, let's do number 12 and then we'll go. Okay, number 12. Even though we look okay on the outside, our anxiety is wrecking havoc on our insides. It can be, yes. I don't be. I don't like being universal because it's not, it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes we create our own anxiety disorder. We create our own. We expect uh, the anxiety to smack us, so it does. Expectation meets reality. We can do it to ourselves. But it's hard to know when you do that. You know, when's the time you do it to yourself and when's an organic response? Uh, you have to be pretty far down your, your, your road of understanding your anxiety disorder to pull that kind of thing off. But that's kind of an advanced. But you can, you do, we do do that to ourselves. We actually work ourselves into an anxiety disorder. All right, so let's go move on back to the questions. Lovey wants to answer the lovey, dear lovey questions. So we got it. Hand them over. What is it like on the dark web? Okay, that's a question for you. I've never been on the dark web. Well, it's one of those things that unless you have a, a reason to go, there's no reason to go. Most people don't need to go there. Um, but it's two things. It's both as bad as people say think we think it is. It's kind of the underworld. It's the red light district of the internet. You know, it's it's the it's where all the uh, background, underground, you know, drug deals and nefarious things happen. But it's also where uh, non-governmental organizations communicate with each other and with the outside world in, in the repressive and repressed areas. It's a place where you can meet in secret. It's like, it's, it's also kind of an underground railroad, so to speak, for the internet. Information where places where it's not allowed. And so it's, people like to think of it, it's, you know, it's the place where drug dealers happen and hitmen are hired and, and you know all that all that kind of stuff takes place and that's true but the flip side of that is it's also a place where people who need to be hidden can stay hidden and still communicate with the outside world so but conceptually you want to look at it like this the internet we all use the open internet the internet we all kind of use on, on a 
um, you know, the, the, it's superficial. Most of the internet, 90% of the internet is actually in the dark web. Now, a lot of it's just databases and information that only needs to be accessed by people who need to access it. It's not actually nefarious or, or it just is. It, technically speaking, my home network is part of the dark web. Technically speaking. Because I can connect to it from the outside world, but only through specific channels. And so it's not, it's technically accessible, but it's not publicly accessible. So it's part of the dark web. But there's nothing nefarious going on. I just have space. And oddly enough, it's probably the least coded part of the internet. You know, you got all these hackers and stuff doing work, all their work, but they do nothing for graphics. It looked like the internet in the 1980s. <laughs> it's all text-based. There's no, it, there's no, because they just don't want to waste time for it. They've got things to do. So it's not pretty. No. No, it's the, it, but it's the ugly side of the internet. In more ways than one. In more ways than one, in every sense of the word. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's where people, it's where the nerdwells hang out, and it's where the people who need to hide from oppressive regimes hang out. And take care of business. Yeah, it's where the mob communicates these days, put it that way. Alright, (laughs) okay, so what's next? Why do some people think mental health is not it is not as serious as someone in physical pain? Okay, now I actually linked to uh, the question in Quora on this because there was a good answer on it. Um, no, I, our answer is going to be different. I just wanted to leave the answer so for if you guys are listening or watching, you can go in the description. You can click the link under the, the question. Um, because there's a, she's, she gives a good answer. Um, but we can actually give the similar answer because we've gone through this. It's because you can't see it. And we're human beings. We're visual creatures. When someone has a broken leg, you can see it and you can relate to it. You know that they can't get around. You know that they can't walk. You also know that in six, eight weeks, they're going to be back on their feet. When you're dealing with a mental illness, it's squishy. You can't see it. And in, a, in effect, some, and realistically, someone can pretend to be mentally ill. They've pulled it off. People have pulled it off. You had a couple of psychiatrists deliberately get themselves diagnosed to go into a mental institution. So they can go in undercover. But in order to go in under, they did it for real. They didn't tell anybody they were doing it. And so you can pretend to be mentally ill. You've seen psychopaths go through court and pretend to be mentally ill and get away with it. And so there's this fear. Now, 999 out of 1,000 people with mental illnesses, right, aren't that way. They're just human beings trying to get through life. And in a sense, it's no different than you can put a fake cast on. We've all, you've all seen it. The person who pretends to be the disabled vet with the holding up the sign. 
and it's not really a disabled vet. <laughs> They're not even disabled. <laughs> you know, you get up, you stub their arm through the thing, and then you walk off with their collection for the day. Yeah. But since it's visual and it's easy to see, people are more respectful of the. It's a simple visual human thing. And it's so squishy. Mental illnesses, illnesses of the mind. You have to tell people about it. You have to explain it. And if there's no relation, if people can't relate to it, as we talked earlier, if they can't relate to it, they can't relate to it. And so it's our job as people who can relate to it to try to bridge that gap. Do you have anything you want to add? No. No? What do I do to feel okay again? I'm a high school student with bipolar, which comes along with all symptoms of clinical depression. I never feel okay when I'm home and I have no friends anymore. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. Any advice? But you're the bipolar person. You went through the... So... What you got? Well, I would, I would be curious to know what type of counseling this person has tried and it takes about a year of trying medications to find the right medication maybe they're in a med fluctuation they're still trying to find the right med and you're a teenager with changing hormones with changing hormones oh my god <laughs> yeah that's not going to be a fun time and I would seek out a support group in your area and get some friends there. Yeah, that thing being at the end of my rope concerns me. That concerns me. Yeah. You know, you can understand it and because you, you don't know what that actually means because they're actually still willing to write into a group and into a public group and ask for help. So that gives me some hope. They're, they're willing to ask for help. Most people in that situation aren't willing to ask for help. But how about instead of asking for help from a public forum, you call up the suicide hotline. You know, you don't have to actually be at the, with a gun in the mouth to call up a suicide hotline. No, you don't. Suicidal ideation is, is exhausting. So, you know, and... You call up, you say, look, I'm afraid that if this continues, I'll be starting. Can you point me to the direction to get some help? They would be happy to help you. They'd much rather have that call than a call with you at the end of, literally at the end of your at rope. At the end of your rope, yes. Yeah. yeah, literally from the end of your rope. So, you know, reach out. If you're willing to reach out to strangers, reach out to strangers that are a little closer to you that can offer you a little more help. Almost, and if the, you look up the National Suicide, I don't have it here. I shouldn't really keep that more handy, the information for the National Suicide Hotlines. But you know how to use Google. You know how to use search. Just National Suicide Hotline, call it up. Look, You know, if you know your local suicide hotline, call the local ones. They're probably better at getting you closer connected. Getting local help, yeah. Yeah, but if the National is all you can find, they'll get you connected to something. It's easier today than ever. You can do it. You can get, you can get psychological help on your cell phone. You can talk to a real doctor on your phone in minutes. You can get real help in minutes now. They have apps for that. 
and and they're free. They don't cost anything. You know, you just have to get plugged into the right one. Yeah. Get some help. Okay. I'm 12 and my mom disabled the Wi-Fi every night at 9:30. How can I convince her to stop? Well, I would consider a negotiation, but I don't think you're going to get very far. I, I kind of doubt you're going to get very far at this point, but not necessarily. Um, there's no universal correct way to raise children. I mean, I did never ever restricted my kids from the internet from anything. I never put any restrictions on it, and because my feeling was that they needed to learn how to protect themselves on the internet in the future and you don't do that without practicing and you can't and I'd rather have them practicing here in my house where I can pay attention to what's going on than using you know superficial other ways to get around it because you know my kids are smart and they would have figured out how to get around it but you can also see the point where a lot of parents have a issue with how much screen time kids have and what they're doing and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that you know it's just a different parental choice <laughs> you know there's no right there's no right or wrong way to raise children it's just the way that the the works for you your children and your family that's that's the right way does it work for you and your children and your family great then it works for you and so I don't think you can convince your mom, except by being more responsible. You want to convince your mom to, to give you more responsibility, be more responsible. You know there's things that you want, that you, they want you to do, that they have to, whether it's take out the trash, do the dishes, clean your room, do those things on a more responsible basis. And then you can go to your mom and say, look, I want to go to 1030. How about you start out later on a Friday and Saturday night and let her see how you handle it, so that you can handle it well. Yeah, but the first thing is make sure you're taking care of your other responsibilities. Your mom's serious. She's not one of these moms, clearly, who's going to – so you're going to have to prove to her that you're responsible. And so you're going to have to have all the other responsibilities taken care of. And that's the way to, to actually deal with it. Yeah. You, you can't, if you're going to go to a negotiation, you have to go – you have to be negotiating from a position of strength. And if your room is dirty and she's been telling you to clean it, you're not coming to that negotiation from a position of strength. <laughs> if she has to harass you to take out the trash and harass you to do the dishes or whatever your, your chores around the house are, you're not coming at this from a position of strength. <laughs> so do those for a month, six weeks, and then come and have this discussion. Show her you're ready. You gotta be fortunate. You know, it's not gonna, your mom isn't one who's gonna give you things before you've proven you're ready. So you're gonna have to prove you're ready. You know, some parents, you know, push and some, you know, there's different ways to push your children. And so, adapt. Hey, that's in a sense, it's useful for the business world. So, you know, she's preparing you for the, the cold, cruel realities of life. All right, what's next? My daughter was invited to another child's birthday party that specifically said no gifts on the invitation. 
Should I bring a gift just in case? No. No, it said no gifts. Just in case of what? She gonna change your mind? She told you no gifts. <laughs> I get that culturally speaking, you come to these things, you want to bring a gift. But maybe she knows there's some there's some kids who can't afford gifts, and so to relieve their pressure, she say nobody's gifts. We're we're blessed. We don't need gifts from people who can't afford it. Yeah. So we're gonna relieve the stress and just have people come here and just your presence is the gift. That's what they're telling you. Your presence is the gift. They're giving you a great gift. Accept it. You know? You you want to give the gift. Well, they want to give you one. They want to relieve you the pressure of having to, uh, of a gift. So accept their gift. Tell them thank you. That's all you have to do. Be gracious. And it's their party. Follow their rules. They don't want you to give a gift for whatever reason. All right. Respect it. Okay. What do got next? I'm 27 and I'm afraid of adult responsibilities. How can I stop fearing that I can't do for life? You can't stop. You have it's courage isn't the lack of fear. It's moving forward in the face of it. You, you're not going to stop. Life is scary. And you've waited for 27 to kind of face it for some reason. You know, whether you're in college and, and you know, now you've got this big college debt. You know, maybe you were just working dead end jobs. And who knows why you're at this stage or you're 27 and you fear life's responsibilities. Who knows how we got there? But everybody fears life's responsibilities. It's not, it's a universal thing. It's not, you're not alone. <laughs> I got news. It doesn't really go away. <laughs> no, and your responsibilities just evolve and change. They change. And so, what you do is you need to look for your direction. There's so many directionless people. I mean, we thought it was directionless people was an issue in my time when we were, we were young. But it's actually worse now. And it's, it's, you know, how do we get here? Where we've got all these people who come through life, come through high school, college, even college, and they come out of college completely lost on where they're going. They never, they never really picked a direction for their life. And so now they're 27 and going, I don't feel prepared. I don't feel prepared for what we're facing. And here's the thing. None of us are prepared for what we're facing. We don't know what's around the corner. We prepare ourselves the best we can and we deal with what hits us as best we can. That's just life. Yeah, I'd like to find some way to sugarcoat it, but in a sense, I shouldn't. You know, I don't have to be brutal about it, but I don't want to, you know, there's parts of life that you can't sugarcoat. And this is one of these things. The, the responsibilities of life and how we define success and failure 
on managing that is a problem for everybody. And our solutions are unique. They're unique to you. They're unique to me. You know, some of us have families to lean on when we fall. Others don't. You know, and it's just the way it is. You all, we all wish everybody had a, a family safety net to catch us when we fall. And I think it makes life easier to know that there's people around you who love you and will catch you if you fall, catch you when you fail, and help you back up. But there's a saying, and I'm gonna I'm gonna modify something. You know, if you're looking for direction in your life, start with making yourself strong enough so that you can be the person someone can rely on at a funeral. I've heard that, Shane. Everybody else is breaking down. Be the person. Just focus on being strong enough to help. And if you're strong enough to help somebody else, you'll be strong enough to help yourself. But I don't have a good answer for this one. I've rambled for 10 minutes now, five minutes, whatever it was, trying to actually think of a good action, and there's not. The answer is one foot in front of the other, just like the rest of us. <laughs> you know, you just... you well, want. Are we, are we dealing with unrealistic expectations? Does he think that you're just going to be comfortable? Everything is just going to be roses? Well, in a sense... Been people his age have been taught, their age have been taught that. That if you do what you're supposed to do, the life will appear at your feet. But that's not how it works. Oh, uh, no. You can do everything right and still fail. Yes. Life can lie for you anytime. <laughs> and there's just, there's no good answer to this one. Because the, the answer is so unique to everybody. How do you stand up and take, start putting one foot in front of the other when you're afraid to? Right. Because the only answer, to, the only real answer is to, you've got to figure out how to get through it. And how to find some way to get through it so you can get through the malaise in your brain and start giving yourself a direction. That's it. It's the only way through it. But there's... But there's not a paint by number picture to do that. You you gotta draw the picture yourself. And and that's not a helpful answer, but it's the only answer we got. Sorry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and this next one. Let's not do that next one right now. We'll come back to it. Okay. Right. Do daughters of toxic mothers become toxic mothers too? Why? No, well, well, not a, well. I imagine it could go one of both, one of two ways. Either she learns and thinks that's normal, or she grows up and she decides she doesn't want to be like that. Well, there is the third option. She doesn't want to be like that, but she becomes toxic in a different way. Uh, you know, you know, you accidentally on purpose because you try so focus on not becoming your mother, you become something else that's just as toxic you know 
my mother was overbearing and controlling. So now you become too open, too free, and you know you not and you, there's not enough guidance. And that's its own toxic. Mm. Oh, yeah. oh, just, I just kind of as a something off quickly off the top of my head. So, but there's not again. There's not a universal answer. We talk about there's not universal answers to this because we're all so unique. We all respond to trauma so differently that there's no possibility for a universal answer. But you are not destined to become a toxic mother because your mother was toxic. No. 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 You get to choose that yourself. You may fear it. And it, maybe it's a valid fear because, you know, you kind of, you do what you know, right? There's that thing of, you know, it's, you repeat the patterns. But it's not written in stone. You choose those things. You can choose to be a different parent. You can choose to change your parenting style in the middle of being a parent. You can say, yep, you know what? I've been screwing up. I need to fundamentally change become a, and become a better parent you can you have that ability you know you, you can you could actually make that choice you're not stuck <laughs> we're not stuck in being bad parents you can actually improve you can actually look at yourself and go hey you know what i need to change some things about myself so i'm better But I always like to say, if you're worried about becoming the toxic parent like your your mother was, you probably won't be. Because you're thinking about it. And if you're thinking about not being a toxic parent, the chances are you won't be. It's, it's those who aren't thinking about it. They're not being conscious. They're just reacting. They're living in their emotions. Those are the ones who like to contemplate. Don't contemplate. So, anyway. Uh, yeah, just nothing. Alright, what's the next one? Why is the pregnancy period in nine months in the Western countries? Because in South Korea, we usually say pregnancy is ten months. Yeah, I, I actually I read this question and I went and did some looking. And yeah, apparently there's a lot of Asian countries that use 10 months. China does as well. Isn't that interesting? Well, because I think it's like the average of so many days and it actually comes to like nine and a half months or something. So it depends if you round up and round down. <laughs> I apologize. And there may be an issue of nutrition. Western countries are generally more... Protein in their diet, and maybe that speeds up gestation. Huh? Because it helps. That's there's a gen, that's why Western people are actually bigger, taller. As a rule of thumb, it's because we have higher protein in our diet that produces the early growth. You know, being bigger is not necessarily better. It's just a sign that we have higher protein in our diet early on. That's really all it means. <laughs> You know, it's not a bigger is not necessarily better when it comes to the size of human beings. It just is. But 
and length of gestation isn't better or worse. It just is. So they call it that because in their experience, you're more like they're more likely to go to ten months, and in the Western countries, we're more likely to go closer to nine. So that's why those things are used. Maybe. Well, yeah. Well, because these you have to remember, West the uh, Eastern medicine. Asian medicine has been around a long time. It's been around thousands of years. This is nothing new. They've been doing, you know, it's, they've been saying 10 months for 4,000 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to trust their experience on this one. You know, <laughs> I'm going to trust that it's, they're not making this shit up. <laughs> it's not coming. You haven't make it up out of whole cloth. It's there for a reason. And so, and maybe it's changed. Maybe they're still using 10 months when you have, with modern nutrition, they're actually probably closer to nine, but they just don't care. Yeah. But I suspect not. I suspect there's nutritional differences that make them go closer to 10 while we go closer to nine. And which one is better? How the hell am I supposed to know? If you can even make that judgment. All right, so how much time we got left? We got two minutes. Uh, is that last one? All right, we'll do it. The last one is, should I let my homeless brother stay with me and my children? And this is one of those things is it's not a universal question. Answer. It depends. Right, right. It really depends. It depends on your brother. The fact that he's homeless shouldn't be the decide isn't really the deciding factor. It's if you think he's a danger to your family. If you think he's a danger to your family, then the answer is an easy no. Right. No, but the question is, why is he homeless? How, what happened? You know, did he just get disconnected from family reality as life kind of collapsed around him and dead? you know, kind of went off the rails for a little while and you need some help getting back on his feet and you're being the kind, compassionate human being that we've all been for centuries. I mean, you go read any family history and there's always an uncle in the attic or, you know, somebody who's needed help from the family. And so families helping families is, you know, what humans do. It's how society functions. But, you know, it's not universal. Not everybody has, some people have earned the disassociation with their family. Yeah. And if that's the case, well, then no. But it's a deaf thing. Because no one wants to see your brother, your sister, your, your no, relative. No. Homeless and hurting. And maybe there's a way you can help them without having to move in, you know? If, if maybe it's not, maybe you're just not comfortable enough, maybe there's something else you can do. You know, there's other ways to help. And I think maybe just finding some way to help getting your brother off to help get your brother off the street is a, is, is a 
good, kind, compassionate thing. But you don't want to put your family at risk to do it. So if you think your brother's a risk in some form, you know, maybe he's got a drug problem and you don't want to bring that into your house. Yeah. But maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just has bipolar disorder untreated and needs to be treated. And if he's not violent, then it's perfectly fine. You're actually telling your kids that you're teaching your children compassion, kindness, making the world a better place. So you just have to sit down and figure this out. It's a hard thing, but I uh, appreciate the, the compassion that she's trying to express. You're trying to find a way to navigate something that is clearly difficult to navigate. I suspect there's a reason she's there doesn't want their brother in the house. And so in that particular case, you can find some other way. There's other ways to help. Yes, there is. You can help him navigate the bureaucracy. Maybe he can't navigate the bureaucracy to get help from you know, social, and you can help him do that. You, know, you can help him fill out paperwork. You know, <laughs> if that's what you can do, do that. And that is the end of the time for me and Lovey tonight. We want to thank you guys for joining us and being patient on on the day. You can find us at latenightlove.us. You can email Lovey at love at latenightlove.us. You can find us at Facebook slash the late night love. And you can find us on all your favorite podcast networks. Please do us a favor. Hit the like, share, subscribe buttons. And I hate doing that part. It sounds so crappy. But it's, it's <laughs> and, and for me and Lovey, please remember to love everybody. And we'll see you next week. Good, Good night. night.